0: Hi, I'm Maya Grantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love.
1: In this episode, we're going to ruin the show Yellow Jackets. And
0: it was brought to us by a very special guest. Hi
1: there. Hi Rebecca, other Rebecca. Welcome to the show. How are we
2: gonna do this? Are we Rebecca C and Rebecca W? Like kindergarten? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Do we I, just I'm... call you Cohen? You, Cohen you can and call Wright? Me Cohen. Don't All right. call me Becky. That's what we did in school. And I no, no more. <laughs> me neither. Solidarity. Yeah. Um, I'm fine with Cohen. That's fine. But um, we should let our listeners know who Rebecca is. Well, Rebecca, in addition to being somebody who's
0: been my friend since the 90s, is a former journalist. She is currently a corporate communications goddess. Uh, And she is, as she says, a 90s and teen girl body horror survivor. So she <laughs> she brought this show to us. She insisted in a very profound way that this fucking happened. And again, listeners, including our patrons, remember, our best episodes have often come from our listeners and friends who are like, we need to ruin this. So join our Patreon, patreon.com slash sauce podcast, and tell us what you want us to ruin.
1: Absolutely. And yes, we are going to ruin Yellow Jackets, which is a show. I don't even know what channel it's on. I watched it on the streaming. Showtime. It's a Showtime. Oh, it's a Showtime show. Okay, great. We're going to get into that momentarily, but we should all check in with each other before we do. Let's start with you, Rebecca. How are you doing and what are you drinking?
2: I'm doing great, thank you. And I am drinking um, the expensive tequila on which my dad basically ruined me on any other tequila in the land. Classe Azul, this is a plug. You are welcome to send me things. Um, I'm drinking it with orange, which someone told me on a tropical vacation was called Cabo Style, but that sounds like something you would tell a dumb American on a trip, so I wouldn't quote (laughs) me on it.
1: Well, I am no expert, having only been to Cabo like 15 times, but um, (laughs) I've never heard of that. There we go. And I do have a certificate in tequila from Pancho's restaurant in uh, Cabo. All right. All right. But wait, I just have to, okay, really quick Class A Azul story. Um, Last week I was in Vegas because it was my nephew's 21st birthday celebration. Yeah. (laughs) We're very old. And um, part of the celebration, we went to this nightclub. My brother-in-law reserved a table And in order to do so, there's a spending minimum. It was like $1,500 or something. It was like some exorbitant amount of money. And so he was like, you guys have to order a lot of drinks. We have to meet this minimum. And I was like, I will have a glass of Classe Azul. Reposado, please. And I'm looking over at the bar, and I see there's three bottles of Class Azul. And one of them is like opaque baby blue. I'm like, I have never seen that bottle. So I go up to the bar, and I ask the bartender what it is. And he says, it's their Mezcal. And I'm like, Great. I go back to the table, and then when the cocktail server comes around, I said, I'd like the Clase Azul Mezcal. And she's like, that's $400 a shot. And I was like, okay, never mind. <laughs> Maybe next time.
0: I mean, if you had to get to that minimum, I mean, really, I it you're help minimum. It, it would have helped him out, really. Yeah,
1: it, it, it would have helped us get there faster, but there's like a matter of principle at play.
2: I'm just thinking of the colors. What's the color story with Baby blue and mezcal. I can't imagine a less mezcal color, but you it's do not you, classic. What,
1: yeah, well, I didn't know they even did a mezcal, but it's not what I would have guessed was in that bottle. But, you know, I'll have to win a lot bigger at the tables or the slots next time if I'm going to try that mezcal. Please report back. <laughs> Someday. So, Maya, your turn. I want to know what you're drinking and, of course, how you're doing.
0: I'm doing okay, uh, the LAUSD is about to go on strike for three days, so that's kind oh. of how I'm. Yeah, you know, they're not paying their uh, like their workers enough. Not the teachers, but all the sports staff are going on strike. So solidarity, the union makes us strong. But fuck three days. Um, and uh, and other than that, I am just drinking Rowan's Creek neat. With tea back because it's so rainy in L.A. and has been. L.A. is Seattle now. I don't know if you guys know. It's been a very wet winter.
1: And uh, that's it. That's it. So the schools are going to be closed Mm -hmm. during the strike. And what? Your kids will just be home? Yeah. (laughs) Good luck with that. You know. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. But yeah, solidarity with the unions. Indeed. So, Rebecca, I want you to share what you've been making
0: for our 90s show with our listeners. We have listeners who are not going to know what this is.
1: <laughs> I know. I, I, this occurs to <sighs> oh, me. Oh, dear. So, before we started recording, I was asking Maya and Rebecca, what would be the most 90s drink? And I think all of us came up with Zima. It's the, like... People drank Cosmopolitans in the late 90s. Yeah. But like thinking about the early mid 90s, (laughs) the only thing I could think of is Zima. And yes, if you are younger than we are, you probably have no fucking clue what I'm talking about. But it's a drink. It's a bottled. It is a malt
2: beverage. Yes.
1: A malt. (laughs) Thank you. A malt beverage. I think what people should understand, perhaps, if they were very young or too young to even have really experienced the 90s, people didn't. Like drink cocktails like they do now in the nineties. Uh, there weren't like the variety of flavored vodkas and other ways around the taste of alcohol. Like there's so many options now. There's so much you can drink. Well, and also hard the, seltzers. The whole
0: the whole new mixologist oh, the yeah. sort of nouveau cocktail movement had not well, happened yeah.
2: yet. In addition to all of that. We three were high schoolers at that time. And so we were pretty reliant on whatever the scumbag in the parking lot of the liquor store would right. get for us with our parents' money. And so very often it was large format, say a Mickey's, a <laughs> yeah. Farm wine. Zima was actually a little classier because it was the size of a beer bottle. And it looked in pretty much tasted like
1: Sprite. Yeah, that's the thing. It was kind of like a lemon limey, bubbly thing. Um, it, it even predated Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's just like one of the first things I can remember that was just marketed toward, like, if you don't like the taste of beer or liquor spirits, like, here's something you can drink. Um, it went
2: real easy.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't even know if it's still in production, if they still make it. I think they might. But anyway, I, I definitely didn't have any hanging around the house. So I tried to recreate it. I mixed vodka. Lemon juice, lime juice, club soda, and a little bit of lemon lime soda, <laughs> which is redundant, I know, but I realized that the lemon juice and lime juice and club soda had no sweetness, and I didn't want to put sugar in it. So I put diet lemon lime soda. And why do you um, use
2: diet lemon lime soda? Because it gives you that very necessary chemical, chemical. undertone Thank that you. I lovingly Hundred. associate with zima. This is Hundred. I was
1: I was just tasting it and it that was on the edge of my lips. I was going to say that it tastes, I was gonna give you a report. Tastes like lemon-lime soda, but more chemically, which I think I got it right. I think I hit the Zima flavor profile pretty well to the best of my recollection, which I wouldn't rely on because we're talking about a long time ago. Oh, man.
0: I mean, I have to
1: say, I don't know about you because I
0: went to high school with Rebecca Cohen and then I met Rebecca Wright, Nay Fox, in college. We didn't drink in high school.
2: No, unless there's something oh, that I, we, did
0: yeah, I As know.
2: As a friend Ellis, who went to high school in Southern California, we did all of the things and sorry, mom and dad, they know, copious drinking among them.
0: Well, I remember that actually when I went to college and met all the like private school kids from New York and LA, y'all had done all the shit before you even got to college. I showed up in college as a virgin. I had never drank a thing. I was so <laughs> fucking innocent. And all those New York kids, shit, they were like, "I'm done with drugs." By the time they were eighteen, they're like, "I'm done fucking forty year old photographers." By the time they were eighteen, and meanwhile, I was like, "I, I would fuck anybody. I would just like to lose my virginity, please." Like, I, I'm telling you. But that is very much what this show is about, and we're about to get into it. Before we do, again, I would like to thank our patrons. I would like to thank our listeners. Uh, You are the greatest listeners. You are the smartest listeners. We love you, and we love everything that you have to bring to our show. You
1: don't have to kiss their asses. I will kiss their ass. No, but it's true. I feel that (laughs) way. it is true. We have fucking awesome listeners, and thank you all, and thank you especially to our patrons. I do want to reiterate that if you join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash sauce podcast, you can join us on the Sauce Speakeasy, which is our Discord chat. And we talk about all kinds of stuff. You can share your thoughts on this episode that you're about to hear and also on 90s drinks. What is the most 90s drink in your opinion? Or is there a better recipe for fake Zima? I would like to hear from you all.
0: So Rebecca, right? <laughs> Rebecca W. Rebecca W. What is Yellow Jackets? And why is it so important that we talk about it? If you would.
2: I, I will. Um, first of all, I need to say off the bat, If I ruin it, I ruin it with my love because I fell very hard for this show um, when Chatter started to grow about it. For me, it was around the first of the year, although it uh, debuted in the fall of 2021. One of the things that really got it going was that it was released serially instead of having all 40 good billion episodes dumped on you at once. So that really helped to foster um, a lot of uh, conjecture about the show. Um, I would classify it as a dramedy horror series. Um, And the premise is that in 1996, um, One of my favorite years, a plane carrying championship bound suburban girls soccer team crashes in the seemingly uninhabited wilderness. They are stranded and through a lot of, um, you know, suggestion and uh, kind of murky clips and cuts you get the idea that they eventually turn on one another to the point of what appears to be uh, something ritualistic, something cult-like, something that looks and bleeds a lot like cannibalism. And one of the things about it that's so compelling is that structurally it toggles between that era in 1996 with the girls navigating, um, you know, stranded life in the wilderness and then Cuts to present day, where some, not all, of the survivors were not exactly sure who made it through. We're seeing them in their mid 40s, um, our age, presumably, contending with the trauma of having gone through that experience, along with all of the um, mystery and dread of not quite knowing where one another are in the present day
0: also that there's this in the present day, the desire to know what happened is starting to bubble up. So that's this tension underneath is this curiosity. There
1: is a a, a big secret about what happened in the wilderness. Uh, We get hints of it through flashback scenes that are scattered and incomplete, but from which we gather, they became a cannibalistic cult. But could be more than that. Could be something else. The point is there's a secret. And because the girls have some, or now women have this notoriety from having been stranded in the wilderness for 18 months and then rescued, there are many questions about what really happened in the woods. And they're not talking.
0: And, and there is this thing where I guess this is why it's so interesting that it is women in their 40s going, yeah, what did happen to me? back in the 90s? Well, I was just
2: going to say, their memories are extremely unreliable. Their alliances move and change amongst themselves, as well as in parallel with the 1996 timeline. And um, it really came at a perfect time in the culture because there's a whole lot of question asking going on about, um, how women and girls, uh, in celebrity culture, for instance, were treated in the nineties See: colon Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, all the really dickish music media coverage of the nineties. And so it's, uh, it's an open question, both sort of culturally and socially, as well as in the minds of these characters.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot for us to unpack and talk about here.
2: Where it's specifically us,
1: like specifically, yeah, no, it's... like like
0: it was made specifically for the three of us having this conversation.
1: <laughs> very, very much right so, now. <laughs> right? Girls who are teens in the 90s, now in their 40s, looking back, uh, trying to understand what happened to them, Do you still dealing with trauma. Uh, of their teens and after the fact. Um, it also, the show has a lot of horror elements. Maya, you know, you and I have been really interested in talking about teen girls and horror for a long time. So this kind of fits into that topic. Uh, and yeah, it's got a lot of 90s nostalgia in it. Huge. Which I'm interested to hear your both of your thoughts on in terms of how you felt that it, enhanced or or, um, added to the depth of the show versus was it just this kind of like member berries? Remember this? Remember the 90s?
0: Okay, I wanted, so I just want to put a pin in something because I want to jump right into that. Um, I just want to put a pin in What if the Lord of the Flies were chicks? Like, we'll get to that in a second, but I feel like it's important to say, right? Because if our listeners are going, well, that sounds a lot like the Lord of the Flies.
2: Yes, it does. It
1: does. Yeah. I was reading an article a while back where uh, the showrunners claim that part of the inspiration, at least for the show, was there was something going on on Twitter. Someone tweeted something like, if Lord of the Flies happened and it was all girls, you know, they would have cooperated together and helped each other survive and got rescued or something like that. Uh, the gist of it being they wouldn't have acted like the boys.
2: This show is basically the creator saying the fuck they would have.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, have you met teenage girls? <laughs> That's really what the show is saying.
0: So we're going to get to that. But first, let's get through the, the 90s nostalgia pleasures so that yes. we can get to, like, the nasty horror teen girl shit in a second. First of all, like the fucking music man
2: they really get what was on popular radio at the time and just that mainstream what you were listening to when you were blowing through town in your mom's station wagon or you know drinking aforementioned zimas um and just all this sort of tributaries of it you've got your really de rigueur, like white boy hip hop. You've got your ethereal female songwriters that I lovingly call vagina rock. Um, you've got, you know, all the sort of post ska, pre grunge, you know, boy thrashing around surf punk type situation. Um, they, they do that really well. And there's just a lot of texture, whether it's the music or the set design. It's it's not Easter eggs being dropped in, saying "Wow, this," "Wow, that." Like you were just saying, Maya, it's it's really layered, and it really could only come from the mind of someone or someone's who, who lived through it. And one of my
0: friends said, "Oh, I feel like they spent their whole uh, music budget on the first episode." Which I I don't know that that's entirely true, but it is true that the first episode came in pretty strong. (laughs) It comes in
1: hard with the needle drops. Yes. Like like Today by Smashing Pumpkins, right there. Now, I didn't know this about the theme song. I love the theme song to it because it sounds like something from the 90s, but it's not. It's an original song. There's
2: a Screaming Trees song that sounds so much like it. I'm going to dig it up. I'm going to find the name. Oh I'm my going god! To send it to you. Screaming, share it. Trees, mm. screaming Trees. Screaming Trees. I love it. It's uncanny. But the, the 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 composers of the theme song are Craig Wedren of uh, the '90s-era band Shudder to Think, and a woman named Anna Waronker, who was in um, the band That Dog, which was also popular at the time like these obscure indies artists but you know i think uh, Craig Wedren is a music coordinator for a lot of television but this one uh you can tell he's really putting a shoulder into it because you know he, he he's been there and he did that
0: there is this moment where in terms of all of the women's music and i know for the music that i was listening there was the kind of vagina rock mm-hmm whatever Lilith Fair kind of stuff but I actually feel like there was a lot of like hard rockin' ladies in this moment where it was like I I felt like some of the fiercest feminism of our moment were the women making indie rock music at the time like Mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. really huge for me those women were huge for for who I am right now
2: well that was the era of Riot Girl. And I think yes. I, I can't talk to how much it penetrated the East Coast, but I think on the West Coast, given that it was sort of trickling down from Seattle and Portland, it was something that we heard that were playing in the clubs. certainly in, uh, you know, the area I lived in at the time, you know slater Kenny, Bikini-Kill, bands like that. And something tells me that as things heat up for the Yellow Jackets in season two, we're going to start to tilt more into that ragey female music because it probably is a great complement to cannibalism. <laughs> um,
1: speaking of music, this isn't music that was heard on the show, but I uh, did catch w- uh, one small um, uh, anachronism. There's a scene in modern day where um, Shauna is in Jackie's room. Her parents haven't changed the room since Jackie's death years and years ago. And so everything it's like a shrine, right? Nothing has moved. So Shauna picks up Jackie's little like diary journal and opens it up. And it's like, my top 10 favorite songs, you know, in different colors and girly handwriting. And the number one is Wannabe by the Spice Girls. But that wasn't released in the United States until 1997. Jackie would never have heard it.
2: They took shit. The showrunners? The showrunners? Oh, people caught it. They freeze. People freeze frame. There's such a cultish (laughs) following to this show. They took a bunch of shit for it. As well as there was something in her list of movies as well that had not it was, might have been Titanic, I'm not sure, but they took all kinds of shit and they had to explain it away in a subsequent interview saying, you know, we really had no idea that people were going to laser in so hard. It's kind of a be careful what you wish for situation because when you do something so layered and so textured, you really breed f- you know, people Very, freaking out on those kinds of careful, details. Which
1: Eagle Eye viewers, yeah. And it's part of
2: what has made it so popular and why people are are so um rabid about the second season starting on the 24th.
0: Well and that's uh there's also you guys noted in our planning doc the production design details and also the way that by having this cast of a whole girl team, you can get access to All of the various subcultures because everybody gets to be something, whether it's Mm -hmm. like the bleach hair, black eyeliner look versus that like everybody sort of gets to embody something. So you get to have paint that whole
2: world. Yes. In addition, you've got this sense of play because the adult leads are literally female actresses from the 90s. Melanie Linsky, Christina Ricci, Juliette Lewis, they all acted as girls teenaged in the 90s. That's how they started to make names for themselves. And so it's a subject of huge joy to those adults who watch to get to see them in their prime at this age, taking on these kinds of roles. And there was absolute pandemonium over who the adult versions of as yet uncast characters would be and who would they pluck from sort of the treasure trove of 90s era actresses for it. So, you know, they continue to do it. Um, Elijah Wood, who was Mm -hmm. a big, uh, you know, prominent, kid actor in the 90s, he's got a role on the show. He's opposite Christina Ricci, who he's literally been opposite in 90s era films. So they continue to play with that and it just lends this dimension to it and and nostalgia, but in a really clever way as opposed to a hokey way.
1: And uh, the casting, aside from the 90s nostalgia of it, uh, the casting of the young actors to play the teen versions of these adult actors that we know it was really ingenious, inspired casting where they they cast young girls who don't necessarily look exactly like the women they're portraying. But I don't know, I don't know what process they went through, how much the older and younger actresses worked together, but they they managed to capture the same vibe as a teen and as an adult so well. It's really remarkable. Like I, I really love that aspect and
0: capture the physical process of aging, I feel like the the masterstroke is the teen actress who plays Shauna, who then becomes Melanie. Like there's something about the way the two of those women play the same character, mm-hmm. which is really extraordinary. <laughs> so now we have all the like nostalgia, we have the music, we have the production design, we have all of that flavor, but then what are the things about just being alive then, the kind of like, what is it about their their kind of the culture of like what it is to be a teen in the
2: 90s that you feel like they mm-hmm. There's something they really nail about 90s teen culture, particularly for suburban high school kids. You are partying in parks. You are partying in the woods. You are drinking out of red solo cups. I know that's not original. You are, you know, lugging your Zima from outdoor place (laughs) to outdoor place and congregating in that way. And, you know, they also get something really right about nineties era hookup culture. It was a very tit for tat era. Like you do this to someone, they must do that to you in return. And there are a couple of scenes, um, with Jackie and with Shauna that display this. And, you know, now consent, very hot, very (laughs) timely, very current. In the 90s, consent was what my parents gave when they signed my field trip form. That was the only kind of (laughs) consent that was happening then. It was certainly not a topic of discussion between me and my suitors. So um, that was all nonverbal. And I think... It, there just was um, a level of awareness that wasn't present at the time, and a kind of omerta around these things that they do hit pretty well.
1: I think so. I mean, I think a lot of that is just teen culture and does persist. Right. Um, but this is me speculating as, you know, a 40 something. I'm not hanging out with teenagers very often to do anything other than tutor them for the SAT. So I'm not really like on the cutting edge, but I, I'm i pretty sure they still go into the woods and drink out of solo cups and do all that stuff. Yeah,
0: but one sure. thing that you did notice though is that queerness was not the conversation that it is yeah. now. Like right now when you have like preteens being like, I think I'm a they them. And I'm saying this as somebody with a preteen, where the conversation around queerness i i remember how closeted people still were
1: mm-hmm. like
0: what has happened with queerness in in since we were teenagers to now is so huge
1: yeah th- this era was really right on the cusp of sort of mainstream america for lack of a better way of putting it starting to accept Gay people. Like, it definitely was not mainstream. You had some hints of it at the time. I was just going to
2: say it's funny because there's a 90s era show I think about that popularized the presence of queer people as, you know, regular parts of everyday relationships. And that was Sex in the City, right? You had. A lot of characters who came in and out of the plot and had recurring arcs, and and so when you say it was the cusp, I see that as part of the the opening up um, right. of that discourse. But certainly in Yellow Jackets, you're
1: pre-that pre-that. And, and you pre that, pre that, and pre Ellen. Ellen was also the '90s coming pre up.
0: Ellen, mm-hmm. pre Sex in the City, pre Will and Grace. Yes.
1: Wasn't there um, a gay kiss on Melrose Place once? Right.
0: And that was like a big fucking deal. It was a
1: big deal. It was like two men kissed on TV and it was like from the back of the head of one of them. Like you don't actually see their lips touch or something like that. Right. But gestures like that were starting to be made. And so the idea of like gay people are fine was not something that would be totally foreign to these kids, which is why Ty and Van making the relationship public, so to speak, public to the rest of the team anyway. And the team being like totally fine with it. It it has a nice amount of tension of like, it might not go that way, but it makes sense that it would. It's interesting, because I'm sure we'll get more
2: into this, but the woods are where structures and social hierarchy start to break down. And it stands to reason that in that environment, it feels safer to, you know, be out. And I'm sure there's an element of, you know, fuck it, we're all going to die, we might as well live our lives and do our thing. But um, you can definitely, you know, recall how Suppressed that was in regular day-to-day suburban culture.
1: Sure. And, the, and how
0: dangerous. And I mean it still is yeah. to some extent. But oh no,
1: the, yeah. then the idea that Coach Ben would rather lie to Misty and tell her that he's in love with her, but has to hide it. He'd rather tell her that lie than just tell her he's gay. It it actually does make sense for the era because that could be his job, that could be his entire life ruined. If the gay thing came out, whereas the being in love with the teenage girl is dangerous but not as bad. <laughs> okay, so now we've
0: we've nineties it up. It is the nineties frame, but it's this frame for something else, which is bloody teen body meat horror horror horror. And I think that's the next section.
1: I have to tell you, in all honesty, I. Did not love this show, The Yellow Jackets.
0: Yeah, I had a hard time with it. I actually had a harder time with the horror of it. I was really surprised by my own resistance and difficulty with the horror of it.
1: Really? Resistance in what way?
0: it was hard for me to watch.
1: Oh, that's interesting. And you know, like, I
0: make really dark shit, I watch really dark shit, but somehow there was something about it that was really... Uh, difficult for me. I don't know what to say. It was surprising. Uh,
1: I I, thought it was um slow. Like, I, I would not have watched past the second episode if it weren't homework. But I will grant that by the last three episodes of the season, there were like 10 in the first season. Probably by episode eight. Like, it, it started to really, like, there started to be twists where I was like, okay, uh-huh. I actually did not predict that one though perhaps I should have because Jeff is the only other character in it, so he had to be the blackmailer. (laughs) But it was a good twist. Uh And things start to finally pick up in those last three episodes. But I did feel like, I felt like they didn't lean into the horror in a way that I kept waiting for them to do because the first episode has all the cannibal flashbacks and it's promising you something really salacious. But then the rest of the, teen era, 96 era plot line, you're watching with the only question being, how are they going to get from here to there? And they don't really make much progress on that journey, at least until like the last episode.
0: Yeah. Well, they're kind of, I feel like they're saving it for the second season. So they have a place to go. I was they just going to say
2: that feels like a marketing decision to me. Like yeah. if we get too gory, too fast, we're going to lose people like you, Maya, who maybe struggled with some of the the initial gruesome potential. And, you know, that that feels like someone telling them to split the difference.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, they're definitely trying to draw it out in the hopes of having future seasons and having more stories to sure. tell. You can't end the first season mm-hmm. with them being full on witchy, cannibal cult. <laughs> like there's nowhere to go from there. I do get that. But let's talk about that. Because this is one of the most interesting things about the show is it it clearly is talking about teen girls, going back to the Lord of the Flies thing, the monstrosity in teenage girls, how it exists and might be its own thing that's different from the monstrosity in teen boys or young boys. Um, And there is kind of a good history of this in cinema, at least, in horror cinema. You can definitely trace back at least to the 90s or since the 90s, some good body horror and sort of general gory horror that is featuring, well, I guess the real progenitor is Carrie. Right? right. So we can go we can trace it back at least to the seventies. For sure. Rebecca, you had some interesting things to say about that. So I want to throw it to you. Um, yeah, you know, I think there
2: is um an attention in yellow jackets that is paid to um bodily functions, right? You've got some addressing of like, I don't know, how do people, you know, go to the bathroom in the woods or not go to the bathroom as it were, or, you know, what happens when you get your period and you're stranded in the wilderness. And um, they take that on a little more directly than um, a lot of other shows and things like that. And Carrie obviously is very um, interested in menstruation and the, the right that is, um, you know, transitioning from a girl to a woman. And, um, you know, obviously, then blood as a source of great horror and trauma, because I would argue that having a bucket of blood dumped on you would promise gonna fuck you up for a while. Um, well, especially if your mom is telling you how dirty it all is.
0: Like, right. and that's why teen girls and that moment, um, that uncanny moment is very dangerous because I feel like that's when girls are the most sexually vulnerable. Uh, That's where you... And I I mean this as like, that's when girls are full of hormones and they want to fuck, but they're too innocent to know how to protect themselves. It's a vulnerable moment. Right. So we have the body with its blood and its functions. We have the sexuality emerging. We have the
2: kind of innocence and then the learning. It's a very crazy time. Well, yes. And on top of that, both Yellow Jackets and Carrie um, are asking questions about what kind of powers does a girl attain at that time in her life? Because you've got, you know, Carrie coming into some kind of supernatural telekinesis type situation and um in parallel in yellow jackets you've got lottie who um you know is off her meds antipsychotic <laughs> meds and is potentially having visions having hallucinations but in doing so you know, everybody's going a little batshit at the lack of food and um, just, you know, creature comforts. And so uh, there's a susceptibility, right? There's a vulnerability. And I think that's what you're talking about. And I
0: do want to briefly bring up Buffy, the vampire slayer, because that was a show of that era, which was very much about when you're a teenage girl and you have sex with a boy and all of a sudden he turns into a monster who wants to kill you. And that sort of made literal the feelings that you are having at that age. <laughs> where like, yes. And so that's that's be- like that age and the experiences you're having are rich to be metaphorical, like to be yeah. made into metaphor. So that's also part of this. That seems to be a lot of what this
1: show is doing. It, it's, it's taking all of these... Uh, all of the different ways that adolescence, particularly female adolescence, is fraught and turning it into a metaphor pertaining to being uh, stranded in the wilderness.
2: Anyone who has been a teen girl, euphemistically, and has gotten her period for the first time has experienced body horror. So mm-hmm. when I call myself a body horror refugee, so are you guys. Like, yeah, yeah. that's one of the most kind of transitional moments there are and you know yellow jackets really expands upon that and you know it's it's girls gone feral um
0: i feel like i i actually want to move to how cruel teenage girls are but i just want to briefly mention because you guys noticed the way that periods you know physical transformation lunar cycle just like werewolves. And uh, I, the Company of Wolves being mentioned, which was based on Angela Carter's short stories, mm-hmm. which were written then. So there's also something about the ways that there is a feminist conversation happening in the 90s, where it is this kind of... Uh, Although, I mean, it was happening as long as there's been feminism. There's been like this discussion of recasting of fairy tales Mm -hmm. in this kind of feminist lens. You have like Anne Sexton, you know, writing poems about it. But then you have Angela Carter writing The Company of Wolves. Like, it is very interesting that part of what I think a lot of feminists were trying to do in that era and female feminist writers were to step into the ferocity and the fierceness and I am the animal.
1: I am not just the like subject of the animal. So this is something I fucking love. Like that is totally my jam is like new takes on fairy tales. Um, I eat that up. I'm sorry. And that's what my mind went to with this show a lot because of the, the, so many of the motifs from fairy tales are there. Wolves as, uh, the Big Danger, The Woods, The Danger of the Woods, The Huntsman. And it got me thinking about movies like Ginger Snaps, which is from the 90s. I don't know if you've all seen it, but it's a Canadian independent film about a teenage girl who's a werewolf. It's great. And the, I don't know if you saw the Red Riding Hood that came out in 2011. I highly recommend it, not because it's a good movie, but um, Amanda Seyfried plays... The girl, the little Red Riding Hood, um, and the but the whole... also
0: no. I'm sorry, you what? can't talk about a movie from 2011 without mentioning 1996 Reese Witherspoon Freeway.
1: Oh, the good m- one!
0: Greatest good one. fucking movie recast the Little Red Riding Hood story, Keeper Sutherland as the big bad, bad wolf. wolf. Brooke Shields is in yeah. it in totally oh, like what wow. the eight, totally 90s have done to the 80s. Well and done. And 96. And it was absolutely 96.
1: doing that. 96, bitches. Absolutely doing it. Yes. So the Red Riding Hood tale, the reason I bring up the 2011 movie is just because like the plot centers around like there's going to be this big event and it's called like the Blood Moon. and And you're like, Really? <laughs> You're like, what? What's that about? Yeah. Uh, what what, what the fuck are we is talking that about? about here? The blood oh. moon. You know, I don't want to spoil it for you. Um, you. You guys can watch it and find out what happens. But um, that, and also the Company of Wolves, which I rewatched for the purposes of this recording, and it's <sighs> it's a little silly. It doesn't hold up that great as a movie. The 1984, I think it was movie. But, oh, I love that movie so much, though. Uh, Angela Lansbury is the grandma. So good. It's 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 kind of wonderful and ridiculous, but what all of these versions of Red Riding Hood and and werewolf stories and incidentally, Christina Ricci was in a movie where she was a female werewolf at some point in the late nineties, early aughts. Um, but I haven't seen that movie. Um, it's this conversation between um, the idea of being hunted by the wolf, eaten by the wolf, and being the wolf, being the hunter versus the hunted. That just is. I think an integral part of female adolescence, of becoming a woman. It goes with all the stuff we were just talking about. Uh, This moment of vulnerability when you are starting to have sexual desires, but you're not savvy enough to know what to do with them. And also you start to get noticed by men in a sexual way. And that is fraught with dangers. But at the same time, you're coming into a certain power. And um, you are dangerous. And also, your desires can be dangerous. And in a much bigger sense, society wants to think your desires are dangerous.
0: So isn't it interesting that these women are plucked out of the patriarchal world yes. right at this
1: most vulnerable moment?
2: Yes, exactly. Well, at the same time, it you know, Yellow Jackets plays with these reversals because the men in this show, in this plot, are Secondary and tertiary, yes. right? um And and you know you've got the alpha jock high school golden boy who really in the end is Shauna's husband in their adult years. It's just a dim ball, which we know happens to a lot of those poor jock boys. So, yeah. you know, and shout out actually to them.
1: like the show um, gives you a big mislead, misdirect into thinking like he's having an affair and all of this stuff, and he turns out to be really actually a good-hearted guy. Sure. And you know, you can say the same for Coach Ben, but his authority is definitely
2: subverted. And by the tail end of the season, they're effectively like, hey, sit down. We're in charge here. Um, the the girls. And yeah, absolutely. It it, it kind of harkens back to this, you know, wolf-like predatorial uh tendency that uh in some ways is allowed to really take root when they're in the wilderness and clearly follows them back to their, you know, later lives. You know, you've got Shauna hacking away at bunnies in the garden and Taisa doing God knows what in trees. Like they're still aggressors in all these different ways.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I think for sure, Ty's nighttime DID thing where she is, uh, having an alternate personality or being maybe being possessed, whatever it is, it's very evocative of like a werewolf. It happens at night. She can't remember what she did. Well, but
0: also that these terrible sides of you that you don't know what they are get revealed through how fucked up your kids are. Like (laughs) that is a very deep, being in your forties, experience like your fucked up kids are revealing you to yourself, and right. all the ways that these things have like traveled, which is trauma, which we'll get to.
1: I do want to say one thing that um, is just a side note, but I feel obligated to say it. They get attacked by the wolves when the girls are trying to, you know, head out to find help, and um, that would never happen. <laughs> And I feel offended on behalf of wolves because people hunt wolves and do all kinds of horrible things to wolves because they're perceived as being threatening. And they make a great symbol for that in this show because it's like the long folk tradition of wolves as representing this kind of threat, the threat of what's going to eat you, the threat of what you're going to become. But all of that said, wolves would never attack a group of humans who are sitting around a fire. And then the girls are like trying to beat off the wolves with sticks and stuff, and the wolves keep attacking them. Like that would never happen. They don't behave that way.
0: Well, also they would never find a shack, and that shack not having any road near it. But well, he had know, a cessna. That's... He
1: he flew. Uh, it mm. Mm, I'm okay with that. I thought about the road thing, but then I was like, there was a plane. He had a plane. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, I want to get into what happens when girls are plucked out of the patriarchy and the kind of societies that they create.
1: I do too, but we have one last question regarding the horror to just quickly touch on, which is all of this acceptance of their monstrosity and sort of uh, being freed from patriarchy's ability to control their unruliness, being freed from society's restriction and repression of their urges, good or bad, does lead into a very, like, big literalization of the idea of uncontrolled cravings and uncontrolled urges, which is cannibalism. And I'm intrigued by this question, why do cannibalism and teen girls go so well together?
0: I think that gets us to the next section quite neatly. Okay. So teenage girls, fucking brutal. Like they (laughs) they eat each other. Okay. So talk to me. They
1: eat each other alive. And this show
0: makes it literal. They, They eat each other alive. So talk to me,
2: Rebecca W. Tell me, tell me.
1: Relationships
2: as a teen girl between teen girls are very often these all consuming affairs. And I say affairs specifically because there is a sense of the um you know two people in on something that the rest of the world isn't sometimes it's illicit you've got the friend whose house you sleep over at so you can do the bad things that your parents would never let you do
1: at home and vice versa i mean just to interject speaking of melanie linsky she was in heavenly creatures which is like also yeah when when was that 96 approximately and is just the perfect depiction of that absolutely it is an it is an object lesson in that
2: kind of obsessive relationship and and you know those relationships can turn on a dime and uh I would have jackied a girl in high school that I was friends with in a fucking heartbeat you know it's it's such um a heady time and, and you are sorting through all of these big feelings and you both love and hate your friends because as an adolescent, you're contending with these feelings of inferiority and, um, feeling alone, even when you're surrounded by people and nobody can possibly feel the same way I do. And when you put people together who are all feeling that way, you know, bad shit happens. Bad shit happens in real life. Bad shit happens on the show.
1: Definitely. And I I very much appreciated what the show was trying to do in that respect in taking the, the very fraught landscape of teenage girl friendship and social hierarchies because it's a whole group of girls and um, the way things constantly shift. And th- there are moments in the show where, at least for the characters, their status of their relationship with the BFF is more important than like the survival situation that they're in. (laughs) Like who's going to sleep next to whom and where is like as important as where they're going to find their next meal. Uh, and, and you see throughout the, the teen 1996 era storyline, these shifts, uh, like the most powerful one I think is Misty. The way that in the, I think it's the second episode. She, yes. she who is like always on the margins, not really part of the team. She's like the towel girl or whatever. Um, right. She's a team manager or whatever. So she's sort of there, but she's not really part of the group. And you know, from her flashbacks, she has a history of being bullied and, and she's slightly weird or maybe a lot weird. And when the plane crash happens, she has this like first aid knowledge and is able to jump in and like, do shit that has to be done, cut off Coach Ben's leg, put on a tourniquet. She She's, like, really on top of it. And she finds the other girl saying, like, thank God Misty is here. What would we do without her? And it's like a drug for her.
0: Right. But it's also what causes her to make it so that they cannot be found. Right. Because, because she feels like, oh, my God, I'm finally needed. I'm finally valuable. Somebody finally sees me
2: right right well such a, it's such a heightening of you know the uh fraught interrelationships of girls but you take them and you transplant them into a setting where there are such extreme consequences right. for very that very high
1: stakes shuta
2: and Jackie get into a fight spoiler alert time to peace out if you haven't watched it and Jackie is literally frozen out as in frozen to death. death she yeah. right. goes somewhere else and, and it meets her demise because of the uh, break, the rift between her and and Shauna and her distance from the group at but that point. Yeah,
1: yeah, she's the queen bee before the crash when she's the captain of the mm-hmm. team. She's the pretty one. She's the popular one. She's got all those qualities but then when they're in the wilderness, those stop mattering because she's not bringing value. She's not gutting the animals. She's not hunting. She's not uh, doing, you know, the the period rag laundry or whatever other tasks the girls are doing that's helping everyone survive. She doesn't have anything to contribute. And so that idea of the way that you can be on the top of the heap and then get frozen out completely, it becomes like completely literal. Yes.
0: So in, in I'm sure I've mentioned this on this show before, but in 1970s weirdo feminist spiritualism, like all that kind of weird witchy shit, uh, one of the theories... Was that of the double goddess that, like, in pre patriarchal times when women ran things in the pre patriarchal matriarchy, they ran things in pairs, they ran things as the double goddess, and that's behind the like you know, Dykes wearing the double axe and like the whole kind of thing, right? That and when I read that, I was like, that explains the intensity of female friendships so hard that women of course we're running things in pairs. That's what gossip is. Like whenever the patriarchy is trying to suppress women throughout history, they talk about the evils of gossip, whereas gossip is actually what women do when they're running a town and need to know who the fucking drunk is and who the crazy person, like there is power in that. And so in our new matriarchal society, yes, women run things in pairs and they gossip and there are roles that they have. But just because it it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a kinder place, but it's a different place. Right. It's a a different kind of social structure. With different kinds of cruelty and different kinds of brutality if it's going to get in the way of survival. Yeah.
1: And I think you see the show working to show you how the different main characters are heading toward a very dark place, if not already there. Like, even Ty, who's the most rational-minded of all of them. So you're like, how's Ty going to wind up participating in some, like, witchy cult coven thing? But they've started laying the seeds where she's got her relationship with Van. And Van has been talking to Lottie and you know, when she got attacked by the wolf, had some kind of vision and now is starting to believe in some kind of supernatural bullshit. And Ty's need for Van sort of like puts her on a path where she's going to be willing to tolerate or even accept things that ordinarily she would be very skeptical about and um, might reject. I I thought that was a very interesting thing and like Misty though in the second episode she's at the top because now her skills are very valuable Uh, I had hoped to see more of that but that sort of dissipates quickly and by the end she's rejected by the group for having poisoned everyone which side note interesting thing to me that Misty poisons people (laughs) repeatedly and I think goes back to body horror and the vulnerability of the body and the way that Misty is very aware of that but um Misty ending the season on this note of, of being rejected, not maybe as badly as Jackie, but it puts her right in that position where, you know, she will do anything to get back in their good graces. And so if the girls start, you know, worshipping ball or whatever the fuck they're going to do, she's going to she's going to do it.
2: Well, it's interesting. She 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 leverages nature to create that body horror. She doses everyone. Yes. In the mushrooms. She's seen you know not helping a drowning rat in the swimming pool. It's not necessarily by her hand, but whoops, you know I've allowed these environmental factors to get to such a such a heightened place that. You know, m- not my fault. Bad shit's happening. Um, but you've also, you know, just to go back to the the duo factor and the reciprocal strength. You know, I think that's why they do a lot of setting up of Nat and Travis as this, this duo, this team, because she's not buying into all of that shit. And neither is he. But they have each other so they can function outside of this framework it looks like it's going to get pretty dicey for them but it's not as treacherous as it was for say Jackie who was on her own yeah right right yeah and that's why
0: actually cults try to break you off from your from other relationships so that you can so that they control the map of reality right and so yeah they are able to have this little map of reality together uh yes
1: it, it is it very interesting that Nat is always uh, kind of separate from the other girls.
0: Okay, so then let's get to... So we're like horror, teenage girls, super fucked up. And then we're in the present day. We are in our 40s. So fucking then what? I would like to posit, Rebecca Wright, that what really... Press your button about this show and possibly what is very hard for me in watching this show. um, Because I had a really hard time with it and I found it weird because I can watch horror, but somehow the horror or the looming horror or the imminence of how bad it's going to get or how weird it's going to get was very hard for me. Is this idea of those things that happen at that age and how they follow you to the present moment. Like, that's the part of it that isn't just for, like, women, but specifically for women of a certain age, meaning us, Mm -hmm. where it's like all of those terrors of having strayed from the path all those many years ago. Uh, we are the repository of that. And all of these women are the repositories of that. And they're dealing with it, even if there wasn't a big mystery that was bringing all of it up, they'd still be dealing with it. But, you know, they have to make this plot that there are things that are starting to, like, open it or shed it up. You know, people are about to find out what the worst of it was. And so are we as viewers.
2: I think... the risk of centering this around women our age, in a way we have the worst of all worlds because we had all the fucked up shit that went down in that time that there wasn't really a vocabulary for and it wasn't really safe to talk about, but all of the clarity of the present day and the self-awareness and the reckoning, um, which I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had in recent years with women who are recalling experiences from their teens in the 90s, redefining what happened to them, that they were hurt in some fashion, that they were shut down when they tried to talk about it. It it's It's really endemic, I think, to a, a certain swath of Women our age, and and listen, uh, you know, there's bad shit that happens to you, and then there's bad shit that happens to you. These are, in some ways, some high class problems, and 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 you you have to think about it in terms of, the you know time frame in which you menstruate and become a woman. Being likened to menopause, the time when you stop getting your period and you go through another really big transition, one which, you know, no coincidence, is completely understudied, under-evaluated, under-understood Um
0: and and, just... and and we're even less prepared for it than we were, like, even in, even in you know, elementary school where we I was watching films about, like, I knew a period was coming. Right. There was enough warning given to me then. There is, like, so much of the shit that I'm going through in this perimenopausal time. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? What's happening now? And people are like, oh, yeah, it's a thing. I'm like, well, nobody told me.
2: <laughs> like, there's no oh. setup of that. Oh, my God. There's there's both a physical boomerang effect, and what I think the show gets at is a psychological boomerang effect, which is that so we're meeting these
0: women. This reckoning is coming at the end of their reproductive lives, and the show is about events that happen at the beginning of their reproductive lives.
2: Well noted. And I'll tell you, I and the women I know have never thought as much about our teens as we have in our forties. There's some kind of cosmic alignment. There and maybe it's begat by the sort of period menopause connection, maybe it's a, a cultural reckoning that happens to be catching us at this point in time that we're kind of in the eye of. Um, but it's coming up a lot,
1: yeah, yeah. And I think there, the show is also just sort of depicting this idea of like the dream deferred, you know. <laughs> Shauna, who has this fine life, she she never did go to Brown. And there is something very of our generation about that, that I think has to do with um, the era, like, coming on the heels of the feminist movement, and sort of being, really, we're the first generation that was born during or after the feminist movement, right? Uh, Gen X were born in the late 60s and then the 70s, right? So we were raised on the idea, the sort of like second wave idea, like equality for women can do whatever men can do, but we never lived in that world where that was actually true.
2: It was almost a threat, right? It was like, we did all this stuff for you. Be happy. Exactly. Be equal. Be this. But it's through gritted teeth because it's not really the case. Right. Well, and
0: this sort of like nothing bothers us and we're tough, It we're tough girls. And that was like big part of it. Right. Well, that's the Gen X ethos. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Virginia Heffernan was writing about it during the Me Too time because she was talking about all of these things that – in the in the moment, we were just like, "No, we're good. We're tough. We got it." It's then, and then you're like, "Actually,
1: no. That was good at all. That was terrible. That was actually really, really bad." And you wind up in your forties, looking at your life and being like, "Why? Why isn't it more of what I was promised it would be, or what I imagined it would be?" I. But
0: I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's partly generational, but I think it's partly. The age. There's this professor, uh, Berenice Reynaud at at CalArts, and I remember talking about rage. We we're looking at Yvonne Rainer, a great feminist filmmaker, and I was talking about how much I appreciated Yvonne's rage. And she said, you know, when I teach my undergraduates, and I talk about feminism, the college girls just think they don't need it, that's over, it's whatever. And then they always come back after college like when they're 24 25 and they're like remember that feminist thing you were talking about (laughs) like like we're in the bubble of of college time or in the bubble of that exciting emergence into what young girls think is their power which is their sexual power they think they don't need it and then they're in the professional world and they're like oh wait hold on it's like you you mentioned this thing about feminism Mm -hmm. and they come back to it later
2: Yeah. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I would also say that as people in our 40s at this moment in history, it's all fallen down like houses of cards, like women's rights are being walked back in these atrocious ways. And it doesn't serve us to just take it on the chin and not talk about it. Our, Our, you know, Gen X stiff upper lip does not really serve us too well uh, in this particular historical moment. And I think it's why a lot of people find themselves looking back and, and recognizing clocking that, you know, it's <laughs> not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful life.
1: Right, right. Um, so getting back to the show. <laughs> yes. Um, the show is not in any direct way talking about these issues. It's not, the characters aren't talking about feminism I mean, there is definitely conversation about their lives not turning out to be what they wanted. And one of my critiques of the show is, like, sometimes the characters do say the things that they don't need to say because we as an audience understood it. Like, for example, there's a whole conversation about how Thaisa's life is everything she ever wanted it to be. But really, it's actually just as fucked up as everyone else's. I was like, I got that, you guys. I didn't need you to tell me. But anyway... (laughs) Um, You do see the ways in which the trauma of their past continues to inform everything in the women's lives in their 40s. In very obvious ways, like Thaisa's being the lady in the tree, but also her need for control. What are some of the other ways you see the trauma affecting the characters in their adult lives?
0: I mean, I think that there's always that time after which... All of that glowing, I mean, it is the typical midlife crisis, right? All of that glowing potential is foreclosed. And now you're just living the life that you're living. I feel like the, the relationship Shauna has with her daughter yeah, I found particularly important and painful <laughs> because her daughter is in the glow of all of her potential and fuck you, my stupid, boring fucking mom. Right. And mom is like, You don't know what power I have, bitch, and what it cost me. Like that tension I felt like was so so fucking real.
2: <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, I think they. They, You know, and this is, again, one of the more heavy handed things, but there's a line Natalie has where she's like, you're all just as fucked up. You just aren't showing it or something to that effect. Yes. You know, she's wearing her trauma on her sleeve. She's dealing with addiction. She's prone to rage and violence. She's not going through the motions of what an appropriate middle aged woman's life should look like and um she's you know kind of their trauma rendered visible while the others are are working very hard to sort of suppress squash it yeah and and yes um but that's the problem with trauma It, it always comes out It's not going to stay in its box where you park it in the closet and never look at it again.
0: What's also interesting about the show is that those girls' trauma made them celebrities, which is the only reason anybody's paying attention to them anymore anyway, because I feel like we are, these characters are, and we are at the age where we are going to be increasingly invisible. And the ways that we are both powerful and dangerous and our life experiences have given us a lot of things um, is in a moment where, we're not going to be seen anymore, uh, and and I feel like we're joining. You know, we're going, we're moving into the crone. The, we're we're early crones, and I feel like that. I we got a while late mother, crone. late mother, late mother, late mother, early crone. You know, <laughs> one or the other. Um, but it's interesting because it is only their teenage trauma which keeps people looking. And I think that most women at this age just bear it silently or by being just fucked up moms.
1: I mean, it's definitely Shauna in the show, but but I will say that they pointedly go in a different direction with like Natalie and with Ty, where Ty is a public figure. She's running for office and her failure to prepare for the idea that cannibalism would be used in campaign ads against her is just like, what are you doing a new campaign manager, but she she is not an invisible person in society because of that. And Natalie continues to be like rocker, edgy, cool, and uh not uh, like sort of disappearing into suburban m- maternal. Obscurity. Yeah. Uh so that's depicted there, but it's not the only sort of way of being a woman in your 40s that's depicted, which I think is interesting. I also want to point out that um, the trauma that uh, we see playing out in their choices and their lives as adults is not just the trauma of the wilderness. It is shown to predate the wilderness. And in in one of the aspects of the show that I thought that was the most interesting, like one of my favorite moments in the entire series is where um, with Ty, where they're cutting between three time periods. Where she's an adult, and she's going down into the basement, uh, because something, I can't remember why, but something has alerted her attention that something bad is down there. And as a teen, she's going up into the attic of the cabin where Lottie is cowering because they've de- you know she's going to discover the dead body that's there. And it also cuts between those two and her as a young child at her grandmother's side on her grandmother's deathbed where the grandmother's having visions or hallucinations that Ty also sees. I really, really liked that moment because it drew this line. It was very deliberately drawing a line between these three stages in her life and the way that they are connected together uh, in terms of trauma, in terms of being moments of great trauma. And I loved the way that the supernatural is hinted at or um, danced around, but all three moments can easily be understood as not supernatural at all. Like if you wanna go there, you could imagine something, but like in the present day or 2021, um, I think it's her her child's toy is dismembered, is what she discovers in the basement. And then, you know, in 1996, she discovers the dead body in the attic. And as a child, she's having these visions—the uh, man with no eyes—and I really liked that idea of, like, the way in which a hallucination like that can be shared. The way in which you, your memory, it, whether it happened that way or not, in her memory, she saw him, and and how that kind of trauma informs the decisions she makes in the woods, and both of those inform the decisions that she makes as an adult dealing with her son and her campaign. Um, I thought that was very powerful. And I liked that um, ambiguity around what might be supernatural and what might just be you got fucked up by the shit that happened to you. And it's affecting the way you remember things and the way you experience things. And Nat's alcoholism and drug abuse predate the woods. She's shown as already being a drug user when they're in high school. Well, I was just
2: going to mention
1: that because – you know hers
2: is less supernatural and more straight trauma but she goes into the woods with the guilt of having shot her father who clearly was going to hurt her hurt her friend potentially um but you know they they all go into that situation with incredibly difficult um baggage and um even had they not gotten stranded in the wilderness, you could basically imagine that Nat would have been traumatized by um, the violence visited upon her father, that Lottie would still be struggling with her mental health, um, but the woods takes it and just puts it all in a blender on high and and really heightens... Um, these these issues
1: so the events in the woods if they stand as a metaphor for teen girl social worlds adolescence and the brutality of that the brutality of adolescence itself and the brutality of teen girls to each other um and it also is a magnifier of trauma and a cause of trauma which these are like really interesting themes that this show is exploring. In some ways, I I have to kind of agree with, with,
0: with Cohen. I don't know that the show is as good as the conversations that it triggers from us are.
2: I was just going to say, like, it gets you thinking about all of these good things. And it's one of the few pieces of pop culture that manages to put them all in one place and give you a reason to talk about it and think about it.
1: Totally. Yes. Yes. Totally. That's it. It's like they put that stuff there and I don't know if they knew what to do with it, but I like that they're putting it out there and getting that conversation going.
0: But also why can't it just be that they're stuck in the woods and so they just create a really great matriarchy and they're really sad to go back.
1: That is an interesting question, actually. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's totally impossible. I think the show does some stretches to get you to the point where where the events play out as they do.
2: It's exaggerated, but I don't know. I've never been in sub zero weather, facing extreme hunger with a bunch of bitches I maybe didn't like. Like, (laughs) who's to say?
0: That's fair. So where do you think it's well? Okay, so where do you think it's going to go? Is this just a long, slow march towards? justifying cannibalism
1: what do we think is going to happen upcoming in this show
2: i'm interested in the cult aspect i'm interested in less the supernatural more the supernatural as a conduit to bringing people under a kind of philosophical tent yes yes i think it's striking you know Cult leaders are not often women, so there's something interesting in the fact that Lottie has assembled people in a fashion. And, you know, talk about matriarchy. You've got, you know, how do you solve the problem with Shauna's baby? Like, there's a baby in her belly, and there will be
1: matriarchy whether they like it or not. Are they going to eat the baby?
2: They say they won't, but I can't imagine that baby meets a great end.
1: Right. <laughs> no. Like you know the baby's not making it out of the wilderness. So No.
0: The baby is not making it out of the wilderness, but it is that that thing where maybe maybe being a teen girl wasn't all of that horrible trauma. Maybe there is something that we find in the present day that they miss. I hope so. All right. Well, we will see. Rebecca, thank you so much for bringing us into this material. We are clearly cannot be done with girls and blood and horror because there is so much more to say, but thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you Wolf. It was a ball.
0: All right, listeners, are you like, God, I just listen to these middle-aged women talk about their shit and I don't. Or are you like, are you like, yes, yes, tell me about the blood. Like, listeners, <laughs> talk to us.
1: It's all about the blood. Have you watched Yellow Jackets? We'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Have you watched something else that you'd like to hear our thoughts about? We want to know. I would never have watched this show if... Rebecca and others had not brought it to us and I'm really glad I did and um, I feel like I could talk for another hour about it because there's a lot going on in this show yeah yeah. actually there kind of is so listeners please share with us your thoughts about this or about other things you'd like us to ruin or just whatever the fuck you want to talk about you want to talk about current events we want to know what you're thinking about and what you're talking about You can email us. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all the socials at saucepodcast. And as ever, the best, best way to get in touch is to join our Patreon. Patreon.com slash saucepodcast. And then you can come on the Sauce Speakeasy and join the many conversation threads about all the different topics. And you can find me at my
0: grants anywhere you are looking for my Garances,
1: you can find me as at gynostar on all the various platforms and we are going to be
0: back with more ruining of things that you love there are a lot of political things happening that we're going to have to get into at some point and we will
1: <sighs> if we have oh, to god mm. all right until then adios amoebas yeah.